Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben Mann hoch war, sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte daher kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will be joined momentarily by our co-host, Chris Osmar. We are both experts of the secret state police in Nazi Germany, and we're using the podcast to work through the literature on the so-called end phase of the Third Reich, the final days of the Nazi regime, in preparation for an article that we're hoping to put together. This week, we're going to be reviewing an article by Sven Keller about the so-called racial community the Volksgemeinschaft, which was the Nazi conception of community, at the end of the war, and crimes in the end phase. Keller himself is the curator and a fellow at the Institute for Contemporary History, uh, head of the Obersalzburg division, and he's done a lot of work on the Nazi ideology of community and belonging and who, who fell within that community at different times, particularly at the end of the war. He's also done some other interesting side projects on the history of Do Dr. Utker, sort of like Kraft or Nestle, a, a big food magnate company, and how they went through the National Socialist period in Germany, which was kind of interesting because, you know, I get all my frozen pieces from Dr. Utker when I'm researching in Germany. It was bizarre to encounter and think about them as, uh, as every part of German society, part of the Nazi past. The article that we're reviewing today outlines many of the arguments he went on to address at greater length in his full-length publication, Volksgemeinschaft am Ende. Before we jump into the discussion, though, first we have the news. So we're going to be starting today once again with news, as we have been recently, and uh, Ryan has a review for us on the uh, Nazi seizure of power. Yeah, actually, I was I was really excited by this book because it is very, you can tell from the title, very consciously in dialogue with a, a really great famous book on the early phases of uh, Nazism written by William Sheridan Allen back in, I think, the late 60s, and there's a second edition in the 70s. But the, the Nazi seizure of power, the experience of a single German town is kind of this landmark work in, in sort of the early history and uh, of Nazism and the so-called seizure of power, when the, how the Nazis came to power. So this is a new book by uh, a man named Peters based on his uh, dissertation called The National Socialist Projection of Power in Small Towns, a comparative study of Quackenbrook and Heide. In this case, what he's looking at is a comparison between two small towns and how Nazism came to power there, looking at a phase, he pushes it a, t a couple years earlier than Sheridan actually originally looked at. He looks, his primary focus is 1928 to 1933, rather than Sheridan, who looked at 1930 with the, the Reichstag election through to 1935. 
This re review was put together by David Imhoof, uh, so drawing from his stuff off the the Asocian cult feed here. It sounds like a really interesting book. It's one I'm definitely going to have to pick up. the The core argument is that the and he very specifically uses the term power projection, Macht durch Setzung, rather than seizure of power, Macht ergreifung, which was the, the phrase that the Nazis preferred and that many historians used to describe it, because he says that without the engagement of local functionaries, uh, local government functionaries and elites uh, or notables, that the National Socialist organizations would never have been able to establish themselves the, at the level that they did and become a legitimate political presence at, at, at the national level. So, uh, which is interesting. So it, because this is very much more a history about the, the bottom up rise of national socialism through the engagement of local political elites and notables in small towns compared to this, this top down approach. So uh, th the basic narrative is that by 1928, Nazism had become a legitimate political force in the two towns that he's looking at, and that they no longer really faced real opposition after July 1933. Uh, they were both relatively similar in composition, small towns, 10,000 people, primarily Protestant uh, farming communities with very limited professional or, or farming or you know, plenty of farming, very little professional or manufacturing. Uh, in terms of employment, but uh, heavily influenced by local notables. And so this is important to the argument because the Nazi leaders and supporters became important in both towns at a critical period early on. And by influencing these local notables managed to gradually pull over conservative voting blocks, their point of view. He notes that there were minorities of Catholics and workers in one of the towns. And so this impeded the advance of National Socialism to a greater degree than in the other one where it was still primarily Protestant and with no manufacturing or even less manufacturing compared to the, the minority of around 37, 33% in the other town where it was present. But they nevertheless, these, these alternative visions slowed the advance of national socialism, but nevertheless came to become sort of whipping boys that allowed the national socialists to draw their vision for society into sharper and sharper focus. As as he lays out the argument, it's uh, the, the party had legitimized itself by 1928 and so was present on the scene, but that the critical period was from 1929 to 1931, centered around the Reichstag election that uh, William Allen Sheridan started or Alan William Sheridan started his narrative with in 1930, where the traditional parties unraveled. What Peters says he sees happen is that during this two-year period, Nazi leaders gradually managed to expand their support among local notables in these two towns for their larger goal of building a so-called racial community, a Volksgemeinschaft. But this idea, it came from the First World War, you know, the, the classless society holding together against the outside enemy, and that the Nazis were trying in their own way and through their own politics to create their own vision of returning to this ideal that people felt had existed for the first couple years of the First World War. Anyway, uh, 
by by pitching this idea to local notables, they managed to pull them more and more into their into their orbit and gradually co-opt the conservative voting blocks uh, in the German National People's Party and the Catholic Center Party that had been built up against the Social Democrats. So in this way, as he says, this this was a matter of National Socialist power projection rather than seizure of power because the way that these local notables ended up bringing the conservative voting blocks over to the Nazis was through local organizations. It, it was a different, very detailed view from the sounds of the review of how the, how the conservative members of society moved toward the Nazi, the Nazi party. Uh, the narrative of course is always that sort of von Papen places Hitler in power in the chancellery as an attempt to try and undercut this. And so, and then at that point he has power and then, you know, uh, things sort of turn on a dime. And this is a really good prehistory about that whole rise to influence where Hitler could become a viable candidate for von Papen to choose as chancellor uh, on on the lead up to this and the the involvement of uh, at a local level of how that process unfolded. Anyway, it sounded very interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. That, so so the argument here is that the Nazi Party created local power structures for itself and and built its support from the ground up rather than co-opting existing power structures when Hitler became the chancellor. No, that it co-opted local power structures in its rise to the point mm-hmm. that it then became a viable alternative. And then, and then at that point, then you have the, the larger, and this is separate, the, the whole narrative about the, the Gleichschaltung, the um, Nazification or the, the coming online, the coordination of the rest of the society's institutions behind uh-huh. national socialist values, but. That really, it's more of a, a winning over of local notables that re- brings the party from a legitimate presence to a real contender. And it's uh, interesting, too, that they would be selling the idea of the classless Volksgemeinschaft to the elite of society, uh, who I suppose are going to be yeah. more uh, worried about the alternative classless society, that of communism. Uh, so it makes sense that they would be on board. Well, it's also important to remember that the entire idea of Volksgemeinschaft was incredibly important in everything, every party. It, I, again, this is something that Hans-Dieter Schmidt did a great introduction about in that, uh, that 2008 collection about recent research on Volksgemeinschaft. But like, it, was a, it was the guiding idea of politics through the 1920s and an attempt to sort of return to a lost unified society that had briefly existed at the outbreak of war and then had been undermined by everything else that had happened during the war and wealth inequality and all those things. But I, I think that it, is, it shows how important the idea of a Volksgemeinschaft was in terms of support for the Nazi party, which is an ongoing debate. And so it was another reason that I was interested in this particular uh, in, in that it featured so prominently in the chapters that are discussing how the Nazis won over local notables. So, yeah, sounds like it'll be interesting. Absolutely. 
Um, and Volksgemeinschaft is also a concept that the two chapters we're going to be talking about today deal with in trying to explain the crimes in the end phase of the war. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I think today we're going to be beginning with Sven Keller's chapter from Terranak Innen, uh, Verbrechen an der Endphase des Zweiten Weltkriegs. And Keller has also uh, recently authored Volksgemeinschaft am Ende, which uh, expands on some of the ideas that, that he brings up here in this chapter. Yeah, we're looking at sort of the schema of what his later book came came to talk about. Yes. Uh, so uh, Keller seems to have three big questions that he's trying to answer, uh, all dealing with how can we conceive of the crimes in the end phase. So first he takes on the concept of the end phase itself. How should we understand this and how has it been understood? How was the end of the war understood immediately after the war? And how was it understood in the courts? And how is it now understood by historians? Uh, then he moves to take on the question, what exactly is meant by the crimes of the end phase? What is the character of these crimes? Um, and finally, he talks about the sources that can make this topic accessible beyond the local level. Mm -hmm. So uh, what are your impressions, Ryan? What do you think? Well, I, I liked, I definitely liked the arrangement of the chapter. I thought that it's, it's very lucid and well put together. Like initially in the first part, he deals with this chronology of the war. In the second part, he restricts himself to this definition of what national socialist crimes of the end phase were and tries to lay out with some success a schema of different groups that that were affected by those crimes and and emphasizes throughout the heterogeneity the, the difference yes. different motivations and the different types of violence that are occurring and the the third part where he's looking at the some of the difficulties of working with the court cases as sources was also quite enlightening and i think the point that really stood out to me there that was probably one to walk away for most historians is that you can't pull hard numbers on crimes of the end phase, that this is something that you get a selection of or a smattering and an understanding of the structures, but you cannot talk about hard numbers in the same way that you can at other points of the regime. It's just not the source base at, isn't there. At least, yeah, at least not on the basis of the post-war trials uh, and not on a national level. No hard numbers. Well, he said, like, yeah. qualitatively, you can talk about structures, methods, targets, but you can't, it's not like you can lay out, you know, number of people sent abroad, like number of people caught up in the Holocaust type stuff, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think on, on the whole, this is, it leans more towards almost a historiographical piece in that he's he's dealing with sources and methodology. Uh, rather than necessarily trying to make a historical argument per se, right? That he's he's trying to figure out how we can answer historical questions rather than actually answering historical questions himself. Yeah, and and what questions we should even be asking, like what do mm -hmm. we mean by the end of the Second World War, right? Which is really his first yeah. thing that he's dealing with. Yeah, so uh, let's let's talk about that. Uh, he's trying to 
develop a periodization, uh, more or less. And he points out that for a long time, the end of the war was not seen as a period, as a phase, but it was seen as a moment. That sure, this moment came at different times for different places, but uh, it was regarded as a an explicitly political are, moment. Uh, yes, the, the the collapse of Nazi control as as a a dividing line between the the past and the present. But Keller wants to treat the period more broadly, and and other historians have as well, uh, and he points to a couple of dates that could be used to create boundaries for the end phase of the arrival of the Allies on the western border of Germany in September of 44, uh, and the arrival of the Soviets on, on the eastern border in late January of 45. Well, it wasn't just the arrival of the Soviets. It was the expansion of the... Uh like the actual beginning of offensive operations within Germany. Because after the Allies arrive on the western border, they they sort of stop, and they don't even clear the western bank of the Rhine with Operation Grenade until later, right? And it's it's in that yeah. January-February period. That's when, that is when the assault into Germany proper begins. So he has really two dates. One is just when they, when the Americans get to the border, or when the, <laughs> when the Allied forces, western Allied forces get to the border, and then when those forces on both sides begin to actually advance into the Reich. Which was interesting because both of those moments align with a, a, a great number of very important memoranda that uh, we've been talking about over the past weeks. So, Yeah, I, I think that we have been dealing with both of these points in quite a lot of detail up to this, this point. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, you may see the end of the war as a distinct moment as uh, people saw it immediately after the war. Uh, but there are also these other important and very distinct moments that come beforehand. And he doesn't, he doesn't talk about the beginning of the end phase with the attack on Hitler. And I, I think that that's, yeah. that is a good thing because as he points out, and as we've been talking ab about well, he doesn't really point out, but as we've been talking over the last couple of weeks, when you want to talk about real changes in the way that the regime structures itself in a day-to-day -day sense, you're talking about the points that Keller is identifying. You're not talking about this political event, mm -hmm. which is the attack on Hitler. The attack on Hitler, there is a lot of fallout from, but it's not when the state changes the way that it functions. And Yes. And and I think it's really primarily just Kershaw who is advancing the assassination attempt on the 20th of July of 1944 as a moment we can look to as the beginning of the end phase. Hmm. I mean, I, I can't think of another major work that has taken that tack. Neither can I. But what would one expect from the biographer of Hitler, right? So. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I, th I think that what Keller is suggesting here, that that the end phase can be an analytical category is entirely sound. I, I certainly embrace it. Uh, and he's not the only historian that has treated it that way, even if maybe he has examined the assumptions behind 
uh, treating the end phase as something distinct a little bit more than others have. Mm -hmm. So what do you, what does he mean by that as an analytical category? What is he seeing that's different? Well, I mean, we have all of these changes in, in regulations, in, in orders that we've, we've talked about uh, in, in some length, but he's also in, when he talks about what the crimes of the end phase were, uh, he shows that both the perpetrators and the victims have the spectrum of perpetrators and victims has broadened significantly. That a real change has happened, and the crimes that are being committed by the regime and by the the German people are uh, much more homogenous than they have been in the past. Heterogeneous. Yes. <laughs> yes. Much different rather than much more same. Um, also, also the location of the crimes. He makes yeah. a point repeatedly about the violence playing out in public locations. That was something that I wanted to test a little bit later on, but for now, maybe we can just put a pin in that. Because mm -hmm. uh, well, he definitely makes a point about the fact that violence, one of the major differences about violence prior to the end phase and after the end phase is that it it happens in public yeah and not just in public but in public in germany yes specifically in germany not in yeah. secret locations secret in this case being away from the eyes of average germans yeah yeah because of course there had been executions in germany prior to the end phase but they they typically took place in the concentration camps or in the work education camps yes. uh, not in front of someone's house who had put out a white flag or whatnot. Right. Yeah. And, and beyond this, the, the scope of the victims has expanded that you now have many regular Germans that are being swept up in the violence. The scope of the perpetrators has expanded. Uh, you now have regular Germans committing these kind of atrocities as well. And he also, while he's trying to create a, a a way of thinking about the end phase as a period, he points out that these crimes in the end phase are heterogeneous in time as well. Some take place after the occupation, after a, a place has been taken by the Allies, uh, that there are still crimes that happen there afterwards. Well, like the assassination of the mayor of Aachen, or another story mm -hmm. that he brings out about a mayor tasking two Hitler youth to kill someone that he thought would be an informant for the yes. allies about his actions as the, as the mayor of the town. Yeah. I he nevertheless he still emphasizes that most of the deaths which occur are still in groups that are beyond the boundaries of the of the racial community, beyond the boundaries of the Volksgemeinschaft. He mm -hmm. talks about deaths in concentration camps, the killing of concentration camp prisoners, deaths associated with camp clearances, death marches, mass shootings, last-minute massacres in prisons uh, and of foreign workers, and that all of that all of that, that is happening is using these techniques from the Einsatzgruppen and the police battalions from the East. But most of it is still against groups that are non-Germans, or at least defined as non-Germans. Yeah, and, and he argues that those Germans who do become victims become victims because they have fallen out of the Volksgemeinschaft. That the Volksgemeinschaft at this this point is 
predicated on membership of not just a racial national community, but a national defense community. And that if you reject the prospect of victory, you've removed yourself from the Volksgemeinschaft and are now liable to persecution. Is it victory or is it just open to the idea of surrender? Well, I mean, defeatism is something that is as seen as a, a crime that is punishable by death. Uh, so you need to at least maintain the outward bearing that you believe in victory. Yes. Yeah, I, I was just curious about that point because it, it raised a number of questions about prehistory in, in that respect. Sort of when did the, when did defeatism become grounds to alienate oneself from the racial community, right? Like when, when did defeatism go from being something that my own research shows is sort of a slap on the slap on the wrist offense to something where you can, you're now subject to violence or subject to prison set. And, and, and in the prehistory of that is that the change is the type of punishment that you're subject to or is it that you are subject to punishment at all right and it goes from nothing to violence or that it goes from warnings to prison to execution well that's that's a great question and i i can't answer for you what what have you seen in in looking at uh, the hardening or the giving warnings to to people for behavior of this kind that that happened frequently earlier in the war right yeah, uh, right up until the until defeated Stalingrad in 1943, but after 1943, the decline in in sentencing is also associated with a larger shift to policing opinion offenses through the party, mm-hmm. who are who become responsible for these pre-investigations and or preliminary investigations that they then hand over to the Gestapo to be rubber stamped. And you do see the creation of a new category of doubtful attitudes that begins to subsume socialists and repeat opinion offenders who are otherwise average Germans, but they will not shut up about how they think they're going to lose the war, that into this kind of overarching category that equates groups under under this new title of uh, doubtful attitudes. Now, I I still don't... That's why... The question for me was how extreme is that with, and and again, it comes back to not knowing enough about party practices and not knowing enough about party enforcement mm-hmm. in, in that respect to opinion offenses, because when what Keller is suggesting here is much broader than what appears to be the case in the file, in the Gestapo files, until they stop keeping files entirely and begin dealing and they decentralize and they begin policing at a local level. And even then the people who are making it in the reports are not people making defeatist statements. They're people who are making revolutionary statements or statements that are specifically about surrender. So Keller's point about it, about defeatism opening someone to a new level of violence in the end phase and that they could be executed for being a defeatist at that point and they could be executed summarily is true but again it was a question of timing and and he 
gets into that point again later where he starts talking more about the flying courts or he mentions the flying courts and things like that but i'm not sure again this has to do with periodization within the end phase when when is that true right and and i'm yeah. not sure that it holds true until until this second part of the end phase that he talks about from february onward Jan late january february and even at that point i i don't have a good sense that there's a lot of evidence that there were frequent executions of people for defeatist sentiment uh, that this very well may have been the kind of behavior that could still get you a warning even at the end in, near the end of the war did i tell you the story about what happened to the i believe it was the head of department 2 internal political policing for defeatism where no, tell me. So uh, the guy who was in charge of Desk 2E, which was the economic affairs and industrial security, so an incredibly important position, perhaps the most important position in terms of the war effort as you're moving later into, later into the bombing war and things like that, actually denounces, Freisleben is his name, denounces his superior who is the head of Department 2, internal political policing in the Dusseldorf Gestapo, for, uh, for Heimtücke, for malicious gossip, uh, critical comments about the government and defeatism. The Gestapo, Dr. Albath, essentially, in the post-war interrogations, Freisleben is unapologetic about this and says, yeah, well, like we were throwing people in jail for this stuff, and then we had, uh, you know, my superior was doing the exact same thing. He made some comment. <laughs> he made some comment about Goering. So I think that it was like a, a in response to an air raid situation, right? You call him Meyer. Uh, yeah, maybe right. <laughs> and so, which is is a famous quote unquote joke that Goering made about uh, Meyer being a traditional Jewish name. Like if if the British ever bomb us successfully, then you can call me Meyer. And uh, well, anyway. Everybody knows how that one turned out, but right. anyway, uh, yeah, who knows what he what he actually said? But Doctor Elbath covered up the situation, and they transferred him out to Munster, I believe, or or he 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 didn't cover it up, but he quashed it and uh, sent him out to Munster until things settled down. So, but yeah, I mean, like this is something that was mm -hmm. there. There were hardliners, and there were not right. Or people who had a, a more a broader, more realistic view about continuing versus never never criticizing, I suppose. That uh -huh. whole idea about Stimmung and Haltung, attitude attitude and behavior. Yeah. Uh and, and I think it also shows that anyone was vulnerable to fall out of the Volksgemeinschaft uh if they were not showing the correct attitude or the right bearing. Uh, I guess uh, in this case, uh, I does this, it though. But this guy had some extra protection that he was just transferred rather than <laughs> being strung up. Uh, right, but I, I, I think the point is that until you get the mechanisms of late February, people like Freisleben cannot go around. They're not empowered to carry out the types uh, of punishments that they may be thinking about that they want to that they want to execute people who are doing that mm -hmm. yeah that's that's an interesting point that 
perhaps the situation with Freisleben may have gone differently if you didn't have to, you know, communicate with the RSHA to do something radical. Well, then again, right? He's a German. You'd still have to go through Dr. Elbath, right? Oh, yeah, of course. So it, it's just that, I don't know. I, not enough is really known about the flying courts. And understandably, right? Like Keller says, they didn't keep written records. So far as yeah. I know. I've never seen any. I've I've seen the orders that established them, but I haven't seen any records of them. All right. Well, um, let's let's move along to some of Keller's other points here. So Keller talks about ideology as something that's very important in motivating the crimes in the end phase. This is part of the point he's making when he notes that the primary victim group remained Jewish concentration camp prisoners, concentration camp prisoners in general, and foreigners uh, within the Reich. But he also tries to pin this holdout ideology on the Nazi worldview as well, that you have to continue fighting because there's there's not a, a good world and not a good post-National Socialist world. Mm -hmm. uh, the loss of perspective, because these people no longer have a lease on life where they see themselves as part of a world in the future, that in itself drives radicalization to an extent, or drives the violence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the It also drives an attitude to take as many of the, the enemies with you as you can if Germany is going to be destroyed. Yeah, if you're part of a group that is seen as going to be ruling the post-war world or having been responsible for ousting you, then this is your chance for a reckoning before that mm -hmm. happens. Yeah. I okay. wasn't sure about the idea that these perpetrators are acting, as he says, more and more autonomously following private interests and acting, making decisions about life and death spontaneously on the spot. Well, do you remember what evidence that he gives for that? He talks about the, I believe that is connected to his story about the mayor. So what's the story with the mayor? So this this is the mayor who made a connection with uh, some kids from the Hitler, Hitler Youth, uh, I think a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old, uh, and asks them to kill a, a local, I think, was it a party official? Following the Allied occupation of the town uh, because he was afraid that uh, this this guy that the Allies had, had captured was going to be an informant or was going to aid the allies in some way. Uh, so he kind of commissions these kids to go out and, and execute them and they do it. And then afterwards he tells them, you know, maybe you should leave town. Right. But specifically because he thinks that the, this guy is going to be an informant about national socialists or the argument that he makes to the kids is that this guy's going to make it hard for all good national socialists. You should deal with him. So I don't though see how that supports a, contention that that this was somehow self-serving if he's arguing that this person is a danger to national socialism and national socialists sure there's it was probably a danger to himself since he is the mayor in town uh, but he's at least presenting it as something that's more general mm -hmm. uh, and i don't get the sense that these two had some kind of beef beforehand that he was, that he was trying to to get revenge or settle scores 
Right. I, I, I did notice a tendency in Keller to emphasize individual interest in, as a motive constantly that I'm not quite so sold on because I, I, and again, you're putting him in the impossible position of, yes, he has to come up with a taxonomy of crimes and motives and just list them, right? But at the same time, and as he himself says, you, there's no one reason why anybody's doing anything. But I think that it's, you can't have your cake and eat it too when you're emphasizing that the violence was primarily ideologically motivated, that there was broad involvement by normal Germans in in hunting down people who were seen as outside the Volksgemeinschaft and enforcing this violence up until the end, like popular participation in many of these crimes, which is something else to discuss mm-hmm. later, and then go on to say that 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 there's sort of this individual motivation of uh, a settling of personal scores is because that is not more than a cover yeah, yeah because yeah by by definition this is the difficulty well, with taxonomies right because you have to list all of them but it 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 gives them equal space on the page right yeah. and and, and, and so. you can't make you can't make a reasonable argument that ideology was not at all important and you can't make a reasonable argument that personal motivations were not at all important clearly they both played a role the real question is which ones were paramount what was the the balance of these different motivations the balance is that a lot of these people are acting through institutions and when you you begin to talk about individual motives you're beginning to (laughs) make these into crimes of individuals rather than crimes of the state these weren't individuals going out and thinking oh i'm gonna kill a communist today right like these are people who are thinking like oh i have to go and you know clear out the worst offenders to make sure that there isn't the type of people that like so that we don't get another round of november criminals in post-war germany right um and you get the sense from the way that this is written that all of the ideological motivation kind of goes out the window at the last minute and that it descends into a series of individual crimes, which I don't think really does justice to the very, to the highly planned structural nature of the decision-making processes about the executions. Yeah. And, and this is something that Schmidt, uh, the other chapter that we're going to be talking about uh, takes on as well, and he kind of makes the other argument that these structural factors or institutional factors influence from from Berlin uh, remained important right up to the end. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, Keller is playing down those kind of influences because he's he's trying to suggest that the the whole German people had embraced Nazi ideology saw themselves identified with the Volksgemeinschaft, and that's why they were willing to take part in the violence at the end. Uh, so he's kind of presenting end phase violence as um, emergent rather than guided by existing structures. Hmm. But, but I guess that doesn't seem like an easy, a comfortable marriage in this case, right? Like that ideology makes a lot of sense with involvement. Like you can still have 
popular participation through deputization and rounding up a posse under the auspices of state officials uh, and, and guided right but to say to say that it's ideologically motivated and that the 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 structures aren't just aren't there in the the way that they they very much are in, in at least in fr- looking at the files of the Gestapo and looking at the files of what types of institutions are created like you get the sense that the the flying courts here are essentially just acting out of personal interest at one point from the way that it's written and as you say it's it's a matter of where emphasis lies it's mm-hmm. not it's but i think that downplaying the the role of institutions and specifically the role of new institutions as the state decentralizes and and again he makes these points about uh he emphasizes collapse and disintegration of the state rather than decentralization and um a a new form of new forms of institutions taking shape i I think that you're 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 quite right that this is a discussion about emergent phenomenon and i guess i don't buy that that aspect of it it's it's sexy Uh, i'm not sure that i buy it either but it is I think part of his project to demonstrate the heterogeneous nature of the crimes, uh, to put a little bit more emphasis on those crimes that were uh, perpetrated outside of the institutional actors and by the the wider German public. Yeah. When he's talking about the individual psychology, I think he's doing a lot of good work. But when he begins to talk about it as a series of individual events or events between individuals, then I think that's taking it. That's it, it, which I should not put words in his mouth because that is not what he comes out and it says. But this idea about people being willing to engage in violence because there is no future that they see themselves as a part of, I think is is a strong a strong explanation for the radicalization and sharp increase in violence at the end of the war. And that that's something that I think absolutely needs to be held on to. Yeah. Um it he sees the the whole idea of a society in catastrophe as a product of Nazi ideology as well, that this way of looking at the world was kind of born in the experience of the war of annihilation in the East. A people who continue to fight vigorously, even amongst catastrophe. What did you think of that? I think it's a stretch and I may have misunderstood it that I, I actually kind of struggled with that, that part for a little bit to even understand what, what he was saying, how, how he was trying to establish the connection between society and catastrophe and Nazi ideology. Uh, because at, at first glance, it seems like conceiving of Germany as being in the midst of a catastrophe would be to move away from Nazism, uh, to recognize its vulnerability. Uh, so this could be a little bit of a, historical sleight of hand that he's trying to preempt um, an argument that runs counter to him by suggesting a connection there. Mm -hmm. But I am always 
interested in any argument that that suggests connections between the experience in the east and uh, the end phase in the west so uh you know i my ears were open yeah i'm a fan, I'm a fan of big ideas right but yeah, I, yeah. it's i'm discovering my own prejudices in this respect that if you're taking the institutions out of it then i don't think that you have the full explanation and i didn't feel like there was enough institution in here Mm-hmm. And, and and there was a tendency to discuss the institutions that were fighting from an individual at an individual level or as illegitimate right and and i think that's dangerous not because i'm a fan of what these institutions were doing but because it was it's the perception the perceived legitimacy of those institutions to carry out these acts that is so important for driving the violence and so I think that you're lo- you're missing out on a big, important part of the explanation that way. Mm-hmm. And that could be a result of this the sources that he's using the the post war trials, something that that he he gets into uh, in quite a bit of depth. And and he does kind of uh, make the case himself that if you just look at individual cases, then what you're left with is a local history and not a general right wide history but because he's building his case on on the backs of these individual trials uh he is necessarily looking at at individual actions Uh, i don't think the institutions need to be lost there but that could be where they fall away when when he starts to uh, draw from the the post-war trials right yeah when you begin to discuss things as a series of of individual events yeah uh, and, and individual stories yeah. Yeah. I, I and and again this idea of disintegration collapse and crisis could you pin him down as saying there's a tendency to view violence as random and individual or that he was just saying that the, it, it, but that's not the case or that, that he was saying that was his view. My my takeaway was that he does not support that view that he is saying that in order to construct a coherent larger picture and implicitly saying that it's possible, saying that in order to do that, that you need to look at these, these post-war trials in their entirety Mm -hmm. uh, to, to treat them as a group to get at the, the wider experience rather than these uh, individual or local histories. Yeah. So he does, he goes into this third section talking about a source base, what information is available, what information isn't available and the the ins and outs of working with post-war court cases what what does he say there well I'm, he first just makes the case for using post-war trials in the first place by by pointing out that because of what he calls a debureaucratization rather than decentralization uh but more or less because people stopped writing things down and because many of the things that were written down were destroyed that there's not a single source base that's going to be sufficient and that the trials, while they are problematic, are the best source that we have for accessing these uh, crimes of the end phase. Um, mm-hmm. And he gets into the, the ins and outs of the trials and explains why they are so good for the end phase that uh, a large proportion of the post-war trials deal with end phase crimes, uh, something like a third of them, uh, because 
they were the, the freshest in the memory of people in Germany. They had happened most recently. And also because the Allies were trying Germans for crimes committed outside of Germany, which meant that the, the crimes that were left were those that were committed inside of Germany, and many of them were those, those crimes of the end phase. Well, uh, so, what I thought what I thought was really quite interesting, though, was that how he traces the development of what the focus, what types of crimes of the end phase, yeah. the court cases focus on by decade, right? Like, yeah, that but from from the beginning they were dealing with crimes inside of Germany, but at the outset they were primarily crimes against Germans inside of Germany. Uh, and then, no, at the, at the outset, they were primarily about, cr about crimes against the members of allied states in Germany. Oh, yes. So from 1945 until 1952, basically the occupation authority, from 1940 to 1945 to 1950, the allied occupation authorities more or less had final say over the legal system, right? Uh, and, and so all the cases that they were looking at, more or less, up until 1952, he says a quarter of them, a quarter of sentences were concerned crimes against the members of allied states who had been victims of, of some crime of the end phase in inside of Germany. And then it's not until the 1950s, as after Germany, you know, regains sovereignty and regains control over its legal system, the, the focus then shifts to end phase crimes involving German victims, such as civilian soldiers, Hitler Youth, with only a very few cases against prisoners and detainees. And then it's not until the mid-1960s, which is quite interesting there, considering the timing of the Frankfurt-Auschwitz trial in the mid-60s, but that and, beginning and in the, the 1960s... Uh, the Ulm Einsatzgruppen trial in 1962 as well. Right, right. And it, it's at that point in the mid-60s, the emphasis falls on crimes connected to camp clearances and the death marches. So I always love looking at the way that mass file collections are constructed. Don't ask me why. But well, because, <laughs> because it shows you the way that the state is the priorities of the state at any given point, I suppose. Sure. But that it, there are such distinct groupings in even just the crimes of the end phase of who is worthy of attention at this particular point in history, right? And it's not until the 1960s with a little bit of distance and, and time that people are willing to look at the crimes of the end phase against camp detainees and prisoners and those mass executions, which is really where the brunt of violence, as he points out, falls. That's when, that's when Germans are prepared to deal with that. And I think that's doubly interesting because of the points that he's making about the willingness of Germans to join in violence against those groups specifically, like the for the concentration camp prisoners mm -hmm. or foreign workers on the run, right? You've done research about that, right? About foreign workers on the run? And German violence toward them? Yeah. Uh, that's the uh, last chapter of my dissertation that's still uh, not as developed as the rest. But yeah, I, I have I've done some reading on it. For sure, and the catastrophe befell at the uh, end of the war by uh, Himmler had more or less deputized any German to shoot foreigners who were were plundering. Uh, so there was, you know, carte blanche for regular Germans to become executioners on their own authority, which is pretty incredible. Hmm. 
Yeah, but when? Okay, when is that dated? I want to say March or April. It's very near the end. Right. And and it's actually not dated. And it's something that I think our only sources for it are these post-war trials. So it's possible that it is an invention uh, put together to try and exculpate some people that were on trial after the war. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it appears routine. Seems though. unlikely. Yeah. It, yeah, when it, when you get that many cross confirmations, then it's likely you're yeah. dealing with the same thing, mm-hmm. like the Albath interviews, right? When, when you have four different people saying the same lesson came out of Cologne, then it's likely that that lesson came out of Cologne, <laughs> right? So, is there anything else here that we're missing about Keller? We were talking about is what what he what he thinks that you can and can't get out of the post war court cases. Yeah, well, one one of the consequences of the way that the cases were selected is that this is not a representative sample of the actual end-phase crimes, that they can't be used for statistical analysis because the, the biases of the, uh, the judges, the prosecutors, and as you point out, the state itself in selecting who should be tried all influenced which cases appear in these judgments. Uh, and, of course, uh, anyone who had died since the end of the war or during the end of the war could not be prosecuted, so they would not be brought to trial. Uh, so you can't look at these in order to solve quantitative problems, only qualitative problems. Right. Right. Can you ever really answer a quantitative issue of this quantitatively? Like you, you just, you don't have that type of state structure anymore. I think you're really. Well, if you have the right sources, if, if say the question was how often were people executed for defeatist sentiments? And if you had records of all executions, then it'd just be a simple matter of adding it up and dividing to answer that kind of question. But you need to have complete records. And what he's saying is that these are nothing like complete records and they're not even a a representative sample of what would be complete, that there are specific forces that influence what crimes and perpetrators appear in this source base. Right. Yeah. Never say never though. Right. Like there's always like interesting documents, like the ratting and prison booking register that will tell you the turnover rates and things like that. Uh-huh. that can, you can do interesting yeah. mental math with, but yeah, but you cannot do that with these is what he's saying. Yeah. Well, uh, with the court cases, yeah, but I meant more. Gen- my question was intended more generally of, do do you think that there is that kind of source base out there? Because I just having worked with this stuff, I wouldn't, I don't think that type of information is recorded in the same way. I think that you get the best that you're going to get are your kind of. Uh, your your list of events your as as he calls them a selection of events but your list like you get in the back of Gabriella Lotfi where you can we have these executions confirmed mm-hmm. there are likely more but yeah yeah that that even that very extensive list is probably not a complete list it's almost certainly not a complete list and questions like how many people were executed in the end phase or what proportion of them were Germans are unanswerable. I, d- I don't think the sources exist to, to 
answer those questions. Absolutely. But I want to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Uh, but it in something like these these post war trials, it is it is tempting to try to use them to answer that kind of question. Yeah. But what he's saying is that that would be Unwise. misguided. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. true. That you can do statistical analysis on them, but whatever comes out of it will not have a relationship to truth. And on that note, we draw this episode of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. I suppose it's actually pretty reassuring because, I mean, half the fun of being a historian is getting to go around to all of the local and regional archives and dig through their records. So if there was everything to be learned from one major collection, it would kind of take the fun out of things. Regardless, we hope to see you next time when we'll be discussing Hans-Dieter Schmid's The Gestapo in the End Phase, which is an article all about the Gestapo specifically and the developments of their practices in the final months of the war. Until then.